Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Huntersville. In this podcast, you will find our sermons from Sundays, as well as occasional episodes about the different aspects of community life here in our church family, and how we are trying to live into the kingdom of God together. We are grateful that you would take time to join us here in worship virtually, and if you'd like to connect with a pastor or just have some general questions about what life is like here at First Baptist, you can connect with us online at fbc-h.org connect. Uh, this is a free podcast and it will always be free, but if you feel led to contribute to this ministry and to what God is doing here in our community, you can do that also on our website at fbc-h.org give. Once again, we are super thankful that you would take time to check out this podcast. We pray and hope that it is meaningful for you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you on this day. Amen. So there's a newspaper, not a newspaper article, an opinion piece in a website off a website called Baptist News Global. Maybe you're familiar with it. You're probably not. But in my circles, this opinion piece came up twice this week. And in some ways, it sort of helps frame my thoughts, not the what of, or the why of what I'm going to say, but frame my thoughts of what I have to offer us today. Here's the title of the opinion piece. Why Moderate Churches Fear Telling It Like It Is by a gentleman named Eric Minton. Now, you may or may not choose the label moderate Baptist for a church like ours, but I can assure you that we are exactly the kind of church that Eric Minton wrote against. While he didn't use the language of revelation that you are neither hot nor cold and therefore I spit you out of my mouth, that essentially was the thesis of his article. He was writing specifically about how moderate churches, and I am, I am putting words in his mouth, but I feel like it's a fair assessment, aren't brave enough to say anything real because their primary concern is self-preservation. In fact, I'll, I'll read uh, a direct quote in case you think I'm not being fair to him. He says, the morality that runs moderate church spaces and moderate politics, which is what he's really getting to, is whether or not, and for him, the answer is yes, politics ought to be preached from the pulpit. The morality that runs moderate church spaces and moderate politics is the same, survival at all costs, which is why naming the realities of what is actually happening in our world directly without equivocation or hedging betrays the one unassailable myth of moderate churches, that at some point they will, in fact, do something other to exist, which he names as a myth, that really, again, existence is the purpose of a moderate church. Now, Eric Minton happens to fall on one side of the political spectrum. Some of you would agree with him. Others of you would vehemently disagree with him. He's on one end of the poll. And while there are certain things in his critique that frankly are fair, I think there's more to be said about the moderate church. And more specifically, this sounds like, like this, this sermon is about defense of the moderate church. It's actually far more about how people like you and I live as faithful Christians in a world of political polarization. That's actually the thesis, not in defense of moderate churches. 
But, but a church like ours tries to be faithful to the gospel and live in a political and politicized world in a distinct way. One of the ways that you can do that is by being neither hot nor cold, which is the kind of church that Eric Minton describes. You don't say anything. But there's another way, in my opinion, the way that I think we need to strive for, the way that is most consonant with the gospel and the community of the Christian church as described, because while, and again, I'm pulling the metaphor from the book of Revelation, which he doesn't use, neither hot nor cold is by definition lukewarm. But have you ever noticed, like on your kitchen sink or on your bathroom sink, you happen to have both? There's neither hot nor cold, but what about both hot and cold? Maybe hot and cold in the right mixture, rather than being tepid, is just right, like Goldilocks in her porridge. More simply, and maybe more directly, and this is what I should have said, one approach to dealing with political polarization in the church is to say nothing, neither, none of the above. But another approach might be to say both and all of the things, so long as they conform to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I have approached this before. In fact, I approached this concept uh, this past summer, close, not quite close to a year ago, uh, because of a need for unity in the Christian church. And we've been hearing about that a lot in the nation for the need for new, new, unity, excuse me. I also addressed it because I feel like uh, in, the, in the life trajectory of Christian discipleship, it doesn't hurt to sometimes be reminded that even if we're right, we can still be wrong. And by that, I mean humility, right? The way we talk about what we care about matters. That's not why, that's really not my compelling reason why I'm talking today about what it looks like to be a Christian in the midst of a polarized world. I'm actually setting this stage because I feel like we need to not be the kind of church that Eric Mitten describes that says neither. We're just going to tiptoe around things that matter. I'm setting the stage because I think we need to be the kind of church that figures out how to talk about things that matter without blowing each other and the body of Christ up. I think this is important not just for the sake of the institution, but I think it matters a lot to our personal discipleship. And I think it may matters not just as much, but a, maybe even more to our Christian witness to an onlooking world. Can you tell that I think this is a really important topic? So I hope that everybody's listening. So. In order to help frame our thoughts today, I stumbled upon a couple of sermons by a gentleman named Gerald Heiston. I need to go ahead and give you the disclaimer that I had not heard of Gerald prior to these, finding these sermons. I did a little bit enough, enough research to hopefully find out that he wasn't crazy, but there might be things hidden that I don't know about the man, so I cannot, I cannot vouch for anything and everything he's ever said. 
But here's what I do know about him. He's the senior pastor of a church called Calvary Memorial in Oak Park, Illinois. He is the co-founder and part-time director of the Center for Pastor Theologians. And this particular sermon or sermon series I found on preaching today, which is a division of Christianity today, the magazine started by Billy Graham, in case you're not familiar. And while I will not be re-preaching his sermons, nevertheless, I do feel the need to give him credit and and unashamedly indicate that his framework or the framework I'll be sharing with us today is his. And it brings us back to this idea of Christian baptism. Baptism, as we may know, is the right Uh, and by right, I don't mean R-I-G-H-T, I I mean R-I-T, that brings us into Christian community, right? It is the thing, theoretically, for those who have fallen, excuse me, chosen to follow Jesus Christ and who have declared him publicly and who have entered the Christian church. I'm not saying baptism is required for salvation, all right? As Baptists, we believe it is a symbol, not... um, uh, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. It's an ordinance, not a sacrament. But nevertheless, it is the thing that Christian community holds in common. Now, one of the things you may not have thought about is why in the world is that the thing we do? I mean, of all the ordinances, of all the rites that would be the symbol of saying, I declare Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, why is baptism the thing? Well, if you've ever watched a baptism, uh, you may know that especially here in the Baptist church, the the manner in which we baptize is quote-unquote dunking, and it is to symbolize not just one, but two things. It is to symbolize both that when we go under the water, we die to our old life. We die to sin. We die to death. But we don't stay under the water, do we? We rise back up. So baptism is a symbol both of the death of an old way of life and a choosing to live a new way of life. This might seem synonymous. That isn't true. We die to the old way, and we choose to live into the new way. So what does this have to do with anything? Well, bear with me a little as I unpack the two movements of, if you will, of baptism a little bit further, and then I'll help connect it with this conversation, this larger conversation we're having today. So when we enact that we are, and and let me go ahead because it's addressed in our Romans passage. So let me go ahead and read for you, beginning with verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. When we are baptized into Christ's death, we're actually implicitly saying some things. We're first of all acknowledging that the life we lived before and the world 
and the space that we existed in and occupied is broken and marred by this thing called sin. That's a declaration we're making. When we say we die to the old life, we're making some statements implicitly but also explicitly acknowledging that this world is not as it should be and that we've been a part of that, right? That we personally have participated in the brokenness of this world and that there are things about us that need to die. We also, uh, when in our dying to our old life, um, we acknowledge that, that we can't fix it, that God is the one who must save us, and again, that, that we are not the ones, that, it, that God is the one who has to take the initiative. And now I'm going to go ahead and, and quote um, Gerald Heiston. He says, every time we acknowledge God's power and our weakness through the death of Christ in baptism, we acknowledge that God is the rule maker and that we have sinned. Every time we acknowledge that God is the master and we are the servant, we are uh, sort of acknowledging the death of the old life in Christ. Every time he says we choose the path of suffering and endurance, not sure I'd agree with this one with him, but he says we are enacting or living into the death of our old way of life. Every time we submit ourselves in our brokenness and sin to God's redemptive care and say, not my will but yours, Lord, we are living into the reality of the death of the old way of life. Everybody agree that all of those things are biblical. Okay? So risen in Christ, I guess if you're at home, you can type in no, I don't know. Hopefully you'll keep listening. If you're risen in Christ, this is also a statement of things, both implicitly and explicitly of things that are true. Whereas dying in Christ is saying what was is bad, risen in Christ is saying what can be, what someday will be, is good. It acknowledges, again, death acknowledges what's wrong. Resurrection acknowledges hope and possibility. Expresses faith in God's resurrection power, God's ability to fix what is broken. That the broken world that is will become all things new. And so again, to quote Heiston, he says, every time we are living into the baptismal reality of a new life, every time we experience the Holy Spirit's victorious power over sin, every time we see healing, every time we see someone respond to the life-giving hope of the gospel, every time we see liberation and freedom and new life, we say things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We are living into the reality of our baptismal resurrection with Christ, who would also agree that these things are true, okay? Pretty orthodox Christian faith here. The message of the gospel is always both and never either or. We spend our whole lives dying to the old and trying to live into the new and some moments call for us to die afresh with Christ. Other moments call for us to rise with Christ in victory. And while all of us are always trying to live both of these truths, 
we have a tendency to skew in one direction or the other. The goal is to get to both, but we have a tendency to pick one side or the other. So here is where I am going to indicate to our fine gentleman up in the booth that I have an image which I have borrowed from Gerald Heiston directly. And hopefully we'll have it on the screen. And there we go. On the screen, and those of you who are watching it at home have just a moment to, to look at this. So for instance, if you have a notebook and a pencil, you might want to jot some notes. If possible, I think they'll be putting this image in the Facebook comments. Here is Gerald Heiston's sort of summary of you, if you will, of the two baptismal impulses. And, and I, rather than turning around, let me look at my own image. All right, under dying with Christ, he has words such as truth. He has words like rules, which are not necessarily bad, incidentally. Justice, that people get what they deserve. Sacrifice, endurance, self-denial, responsibility, accountability, and tough love. Is there anything wrong with any of the things on this list? The answer is no, just in case you're curious. On the other side, rising with Christ, he associates words like kindness and freedom and fairness and empowerment and healing and joy. And he has community assistance, but I think I'd say community care, that we lift each other up and compassion and tender love. Now, while all of us know that all of these things are true, might you say, and sort of the, the thesis of this argument depends on it, so you may or may not agree, that it's easier for us to find ourselves on one side of the list or the other. At least one of you is nodding your head. It is easier for us to find ourselves on one side of the list or the other. And now this is where Heiston makes a move that you may, may or not agree with, and I may or may not agree with too. But let's go ahead and put the second visual up, whether you're in the room or watching from home, which should say on the top, conservative impulses and liberal. He means this in a political, social, potentially theological, all of the ways. The lists are the same. It is only the headings that are different. Now, one of the things my concern in showing you this list is that, is that we might miss the forest for the trees and quibble about the details. So let's take that off. Because he could be right or he could be wrong. I feel like if I could take the temperature of this room, I would try and like measure the anxiety of those who are here or who are watching at home. He could be right or he could be wrong about which of these fit in what category, and by no means am I saying that conservatives aren't kind or that liberals don't care about truth. Can we just go ahead and name that? But can we also, does he make the fair point, and is it fair to say that a Christian who is really focused on truth, which we have already agreed is a gospel reality. And a Christian who's really focused on kindness, which we have also agreed is a gospel reality. 
might look at things politically in a different kind of way, and that they would do so out of genuine Christian conviction and obedience. Now here's the pivot that I want to make because I'm not just interested in us understanding each other better and having a little more grace, although I think that's significant. What I'm more interested is each of us and all of us collectively as a community living into the gospel truth, which includes both columns. If you are a person who is very truthful, but does not season that truth with love, are you right? Or have you found a way to be wrong while being right all at the same time? Or if you are a Christian who is incredibly kind, but never says anything real or true, that's just compassionate to a point of like just total lack of accountability, are you right? Or if in your rightness, have you figured out a way to do it wrong? My point is, or at least Gerald's point, Gerald Heiston's point is, the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than the human imagination. There's a reason why God is God and why we are not. While the, why the psalmist writes, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. While God is always able to hold truth and kindness and tension and rules and freedom in tension, guess what? You and I aren't. Do you know what God's answer is to our inability to hold all of the truths in perfect tension? It is called the body of Christ, friends. And in order for us to be most right, if you will, we have to be in community with one another while simultaneously talking about the things. I've totally gotten off my, uh, my not my agenda here, my, um, I can't even, what is this called? It's called an outline. So let's see if I can bring us in. Let me bring me back in to the concept of the moderate church. The opinion piece said, suggested that moderates were bland, that they wanted to be all things to all people, which in the end meant they were nothing to really anyone. The other unspoken, even if you don't say anything, a second option, which I haven't named in a moderate church, is just to silently judge your neighbor and not say it out loud, right? To silently think to herself that clearly they can't love Jesus as much as I do, and I will forgive them for being Republican or Democrat in the same way that we're supposed to love the Gentiles and the Pharisees. But what if being moderate, and I'm at this point going to jettison that word and instead use the word faithful, what if being faithful means that believing both of these lists are true and that part of being a disciple is recognizing 
our own inadequacy, frankly. That we're probably wrong about some things and we don't know which of the things we're wrong about and so we need each other to grapple with both sides of the list as we work toward being faithful disciples of Jesus Christ and faithful witnesses to our community. Back to the quote-unquote real world of politics, which I'll say more about, I think, next week. This is a two-part sermon, incidentally. I do want to be very clear that by saying both columns are right, I am not saying that means everything that every political party does is right. In fact, again, to quote Heiston, he says, there are many manifestations of these impulses in North American politics that are not true, accurate, or faithful to Christianity. However, the impulses themselves, the tension is a gospel tension. He writes that in the same way that good Christian parents can genuinely disagree about whether to do tough love or tender love, can you imagine trying to figure that out on a national scale? And so the conclusion for today is that as we figure out how to be Christians, and I will say more about this next week, As we try to figure out how to be Christians in a politicized world, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. If if you're only identifying with one of these columns, you're doing it wrong. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ embraces both death to the old life and resurrection of the new. They are simultaneously both right but on their own, they're both wrong. Again, if you're true but not kind, you're still getting it wrong. And if you have kindness but no truth, you're still not doing it right then either. So as we work to be a gospel people, we are going to need a lot of humility. We're gonna need a lot of grace We're also going to need a lot of courage because I don't believe that the right way to be moderate is to say neither and to do none of the things. Instead, it is to try and figure out how to do and be and say both. And guess what? That gets messy. But we can do it. Why? Because we hold in common our baptism and our common faith, our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. God, thank you that you are the kingdom that supersedes all kingdoms. As Matthew 6.33 teaches those of us who are Christians, who are disciples, who wear the name of Christian, that we are to seek first your kingdom, to seek God and your kingdom and all else shall be added unto us. As we try to sort out what that means, we confess our own fallibility 
and our inability to have the mind of God. Your thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And so may we hear the truth that we need to hear from each other. May we see the image of Christ in our neighbor, our Christian neighbor, in addition to the neighbor um, in the world. And together, Lord, help us to press forward into being people who are unified in in Christ, not for the sake of lukewarm, but for the sake of finding that place that is just right. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.